This is Courage Cast. Faith, inspiration, and motivation for today. Eric Nordoff, and welcome to another episode of Courage Cast. I hope you enjoyed last week's guest. We had Megan Mitchell with I Was Created to Be.co on talking about mentoring 16 to 29 year olds and her sharing that vision right at the beginning of the journey. I'm excited to check in with her maybe in about a, a year or two. We'll see where that vision has gone and uh, what inspiring stories she might have to tell us about pursuing our dreams. Because we, we need to hear other people's stories and testimonies to encourage us in our journey that God has planted us on and set us on. Because hearing others, the way others, the way God's working in others is just going to be an encouragement for us. It's not meant to be in a comparison because we all are set on a different journey and a different path. But we can celebrate, when we celebrate what God is doing in other people's lives, we are actually celebrating what God can do and is doing in our life. So the more you can catch yourself celebrating sincerely other people's successes and uh Taking taking part of that, we're we're acknowledging it's a it's a form of praise and worship. It's it's a way to acknowledge that God is a miracle worker, that He does great things in our lives when we surrender and when we are obedient to His call in our lives. And so I want to make sure that we do that. So listen to Megan's story if you've not heard that our interview from last week. Uh, this week we have the amazing story of the mission walker, Edie Sundby, who literally walks her way through cancer in a pretty incredible way. So another testimonial story. If you think you got problems, this is the podcast for you because man, she was hit with some pretty raw news. And I was literally like my mouth was open. My jaws were open during the conversation. Uh, I can't wait to share that with you a little bit later on in today's episode, but I want to remind you of a few things in the Courageous community before we get there. First is five steps to get your confidence back. If you've not gone there yet, it's time to go to CourageousCommunity.com, take a look at our new website, and specifically the top of the website, you'll find five steps to get your confidence back. And I want you to sign up for our email list there and you'll get a video, an encouraging video and a PDF. If you're in a place where you're just, you're just kind of not sure where you're going and, and we've all been there and I, I've used this just recently. I've gone back to this formula, so to speak, this, this step-by-step process that, that always helps me, uh, in, getting my confidence back and getting me back to a place of of balance and centeredness and focus and vision. So five steps to get your confidence back, go to CourageousCommunity.com. Well, if you've been a listener for the last few weeks of the Courage Cast, you've known that we have a brand new Patreon page, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash CourageCast is the way that you can support 
the Courage Cast. We spend hundreds of dollars a month in putting this podcast together. And uh, there's a lot, quite a lot of expenses that you wouldn't be aware of in putting this together. And so I am starting to ask for monthly support. And if you would like to consider that, prayerfully consider that, you can do that at patreon.com if you're finding great value in this. And if you're not finding great value in this or not enough to donate on a monthly basis and uh, support the podcast and keep our expenses up, let me know why. Send me an email at eric at courageouscommunity.com. Feel free, send me an email. Give me feedback, what you would love the Courage Cast to be for you. One thing I will tell you, and I need to get over this little cold that I have here. You can probably hear that in my voice. Um, I'm going to be returning back to the daily uh, notes of encouragement, the daily five, 10-minute messages. Uh, I hope to start that up sometime in the beginning of October, sort of. Uh, taking a break from that, but there's so much that I still want to talk about that I'm not getting to, and I'm, I miss it, quite frankly. So uh, for me, it's a way of journaling and getting some thoughts out on paper and sharing a little bit more of my story, and hopefully it'll inspire you to uh, be vulnerable, be authentic in the life that you lead, in the courageous. Uh, part of being courageous is being authentic and being yourself, understanding that you are not perfect and that's what I aim to do, and hopefully you can uh, take inspiration from that and maybe some motivation from that and maybe learn some lessons that I have had to learn before you actually do them uh, and, uh, and and avoid some of the mistakes that, that I've made. Certainly, those are some things I want to share, along with many other things, inspirational things, motivational things, um, truths. That I, that I hope to live. So that's going to be coming up in future weeks. But like I said, I, I need to get over this cold because I can barely talk in the morning. I'm talking in the middle of the day right now, and that's reasonably good. But I know by the end of the day, I'll be losing my voice again. So kind of hard for a podcaster to be strong. Uh, you can pray for my voice that it gets better. Luckily, this interview that I did with Edie Sunby is an interview from a couple of weeks ago when I sat down with her, so you will not hear that in my voice today. Well, speaking of Edie, I want to talk about her right now. So Edie was diagnosed with a terminal illness. We all know somebody who's been diagnosed with this or has received this kind of diagnosis, and we can all testify that it is an absolutely traumatic experience. Well, Edie Sunby took her diagnosis, and she made peace with it. But after a while, she decided to try her own form of therapy. In the midst of 79 rounds of chemo and three radical surgeries, Edie Sunby began walking, and she was on a mission. On this episode, Edie and I discuss why she chose walking, what the trek involved, the emotions that follow terminal cancer, and how she found God in the desert. She truly is a remarkable person and a great storyteller. Edie's mission is to be an ambassador of hope and to share her story of healing and freedom to those in a season of pain. Her book, The Mission Walker, details her journey, and you can find all about it in a link on our website at CourageousCommunity.com. Go to the episode section and look for episode 290 and you'll 
get all access to everything you need to know if you want to follow up with Edie, get in touch with her, and all the links that you'd ever want to hear and look at are all there for Edie. So let's jump into my interview with the lovely Edie Sunbeam. So Edie, pretend that I am walking in and I'm sitting uh, next to you on an airplane. I introduce myself and we have some pleasantries. If I asked you the question, so Edie, tell me a little bit about yourself. What would you say? Well, on on an airplane, I gauge whether I really wanted to engage in a conversation or not, but I really want to engage with you, Eric. So so I would, if if you were sitting next to me, I would, I would, I would look at you and I would, I would ask, do you want the short form or do you want the long form? (laughs) Well, since we have some time, I want the long form. We got a two hour flight here. A one hour flight. How about that? Excellent. Okay. Uh, You know, I was hit with some devastating news. I was given three months to live. Mm -hmm. I was alone. My family was off uh, children in college, husband off uh, working on a, in business out of the country. Mm-hmm. And I was arrogantly healthy. Mm-hmm. And I was looking so forward. My children had just gone off to college. I was looking so forward to the next phase of life, re- jump-starting my career. In fact, I was interviewing for a new job that, uh, that period of time. We had just started a new business, my husband and I, so we had mortgaged our house, and we were looking so forward to uh, a new entrepreneurial activity, our enterprise. Mm-hmm. And so everything was just wonderful. It was just great. And then whammo, uh, I got a smack. Um, I started having some uh, issues first with some lower back pain. It became more intense. It didn't go away. The pain started to radiate, radiate up into my kind of my right shoulder area, but it's elusive pain. But again, it didn't go away. It got a little worse, a little more intense. At night, I had a hard time even sleeping because it was so, so much discomfort. And um, I had been, I had some intestinal issues, uh, some um, digestive issues. And so my, my daughter, one of my daughters had taken a gap year before starting college and uh, she and I had gone over to India to work in a, in a Christian orphanage there for a few months. And we had returned uh, about three weeks or four weeks earlier. And I thought, well, you know, I picked up a parasite in India. Mm. So it didn't cause me much concern. Uh, but uh, it, it, it started getting more and more intense. So I knew I needed to see a doctor. So I, I didn't have a doctor. I hadn't seen a doctor for 20 years. And I was, like I said, very arrogantly healthy. So anyway, I get this, I, I go in, uh, I, I can't see a doctor for three months, but his physician's assistant called me and, and asked me, because I'd mentioned I had some, uh, some, um, some bad problems with some pain in my back and my shoulder. I was having intestinal issues. So she said, come on in, let's just do a couple of uh, blood tests. And uh, then the next day I came in, I did that. The next day she called me in. We did a, a, an abdominal ultrasound, and I knew I was beginning to get a little concerned when that 
the um, technician stopped talking very pleasantly to me and asked the uh, asked the radiologist to come in. And then they got very silent as they were moving the wand over my abdomen and whispering, actually, saying, look at this and what do you think of this and, 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 and hold it, let's look at this. And I knew that they were seeing some things that were probably unusual. Mm-hmm. And so then that the next day I went in for a different ultrasound, a pelvic ultrasound, which is a little bit more uh, direct and more intense. And then the next day, uh, the uh, physician's assistant called me up and she said, come in, we'd like you to do an MRI. But first, we're going to do a CT scan. Uh, We're going to do that with contrast. And at that time, you know, again, I'd say, well, what's going on? And they just say, well, you know, we're just we're just doing some tests. We just want to kind of know we want to know what's going on before we talk to you about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, what happened is is. Three days later, that evening, Thursday evening, I got a call from the doctor that I'd never met before, who I had an appointment with in three months, and he said, Edie, I need to talk to you. Can you be in my office tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock? Okay. Well, Eric, that's the call you don't want to get. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so at 8 o'clock the next morning, I didn't sleep well that night. I went in, and sure enough, um, he had a file folder in his hand about two inches thick already, and it had my name on it. And the first thing he said is, where's your family? Because I showed up all alone. Oh. And I said, I'm all by myself. My children are off for college. Uh, my husband is in Europe uh, on a, working on a new business enterprise. So I'm all alone. And he said, well, you need to call your family and ask them to come home. Mm-hmm. They need to come home quickly. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, then he just opened up and he said, you have cancer. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I just was pretty stunned. He let me sit there a bit to uh, kind of digest that. And the only thing I could think of asking, because I didn't know that much about cancer, but I knew, I thought the most important question was, has it spread? Mm-hmm. And he said, yes. He said, yes, it spread. Mm-hmm. And then he just started talking. Uh, he just just decided he had to share everything with me. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, you are filled with cancer. We can see it in um, three or four organs very distinctly. He said, you have a 17 centimeter tumor in your abdomen, Mm -hmm. in your peritoneum. Mm -hmm. And I can remember thinking, I don't even know what the peritoneum is. (laughs) But I was just, I just said, what is 17 centimeters? And he said, that's over seven inches. So I remember sitting there with my hands uh, seven inches apart, trying to envision a tumor that big and, and knowing that that took up the whole length of my abdomen. Yeah. And I was so I was absolutely stunned, shocked. And and he again, he, he by that time, he did have his arm around my shoulders and he said, you need to call your family home. They need to come home immediately. Mm-hmm. And um and 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 I said, well, do we know anything about it? He indicated they believed it started in the gallbladder, but he wasn't certain. Um, the gallbladder was totally black, totally black with cancer, but it was also throughout my liver, mm-hmm. and they could not really be 100% for sure. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, very, very serious in eight or nine different organs. And how many years ago was this? This was 10 years ago. 10 years ago. 10 so years ago, August yes. 2017 right now, so t- yes. August of 20 or whatever, 20, 2007, March. March of 2007. March of 2007, mm. yes. And so uh, 
to say I was stunned was putting it mildly. Mm -hmm. And of course, I immediately got into the rabbit hole of the internet and realized what I was up against because gallbladder cancer is very rare and it's almost always, it's always terminal, it's always fatal. Uh, it's silent. You, it's a puny little organ. We don't even need it, mm -hmm. but it's tucked under the liver and next to the bile duct and all those other really important things like your arterial artery and your portal vein and all that. So by the time cancer is in the gallbladder, often it has spread and it's already uh, in other organs and it's pretty late. You, you know, it's, it's very advanced. So most people... Uh, don't very very few people less than two percent even live beyond the first year. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I knew what I was up against, kinda sorta. You never know what you're up against. Mm -hmm. We're never prepared for what we expect. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a shock. And my husband, it was a horrendous uh, journey getting back from Europe uh, to be with me. And of course, my children is March, and they were in their first year of college with semester examinations. They just gave everything up. They gave up their entire year of college uh, examination week and came home. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, we, uh, we immediately, all of us and my family, I'm very, very blessed because we're all um, uh, pretty strong individuals. And uh, we, we just knew immediately that, and it was a we, it wasn't me. And it wasn't they, it was we. We had a fight in front of us. Mm -hmm. And it was going to be a tough, tough fight, but we were in it together. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we prayed together, and we uh, we held on to each other and uh, found out all we could. And before they even came home, Eric, I accepted it. Mm -hmm. I'd gotten my mother's Bible down from uh, from. Um, from from my desk and and I was holding it and caressing it and I really felt like I was holding my mother because she had died several uh, decades before. But holding the Bible, I was holding her. I was holding on to her, and and she had written throughout the Bible. She had passages underlined, written in the margins, and I was reading. I was reading Ecclesiastes. I read it many 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 times. Proverbs, Psalms, Romans. You know, how did St. Paul deal with all the horrific things he had to deal with? How did Jesus deal with these things? Mm -hmm. And so I took great comfort in the Bible, and and I accepted it. I, You know, death was coming and inevitable. I accepted it. But that did not mean I wasn't going to fight for life. Right. I wasn't afraid of death. but I. So it wasn't out of fear of death. It was out of joy of living. Mm -hmm. I love life, mm -hmm. and and I wanted more. <laughs> and I was willing to do whatever it took to pay the price to have more. Mm. Uh, so so you get this diagnosis. Your kids are are home, you, and your your husband's home. Uh, you're you're in this situation. Um, so. Uh, what inspired you then? I mean, how, how did it come about that, that you uh, were going to decided to walk the El Camino Real mission trail? Yes. Well, it, it was a horrendous fight uh, for five and a half years. It, I realized from the very beginning, Eric, that I could go home and prepare to die and say goodbye to my family, mm -hmm. or I could keep moving. Yeah. 
and literally moving. The body means is it tends to move. And in fact, when we start to move, we're not as afraid. And that's how I am anyway. Once I start to move, I lose a lot of fear. Um, and so from the very get-go, from the very first day I was diagnosed, I started walking. And, and I happened to live in San Diego right off the El Camino Real Mission Trail. And so the, the, every mile is, is a mission bell, an old mission bell. Some of them have been there since 1906, 1910. Mm-hmm. Uh, they line uh, the old El Camino Real here in California. Mm-hmm. And most of us don't even see them because we're speeding by in our cars. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, uh, so I went through a five-and-a-half-year fight. Uh, Stanford Cancer Center uh, was stunned. Uh, actually, they're still uh, they're still stunned that I'm still alive. Uh, but I went through 79 rounds of chemo, almost a million milligrams. I've had four surgeries. I've had I've lost 60 percent of my liver. I've lost my right lung. I've had 10 inches of colon, a couple inches of stomach removed, and I've had uh, some uh, throat uh, nodules removed. So um, yes, I I went through so much in that five and a half years. And when it was over, when they finally took out my right lung and it looked like cancer was behaving itself. In other words, we had gotten it under control, although with stage four disease, it's always there. Mm -hmm. Those seeds are all always there. Mm -hmm. But so it had been five and a half years, a tremendous fight. And I lost my right lung and and I didn't want to diminish life. Mm -hmm. And so I got the idea that I was so grateful. I was so thankful to be alive. How could I do this? How could I express my gratitude, my joy? So I decided to walk the 800-mile El Camino Real Mission Trail from San Diego up north of San Francisco to Sonoma. It's 800 miles. Okay. It's one old Spanish missions. Mm-hmm. These old missions are 200, 250 years old. Mm-hmm. And so the El Camino Real Mission Trail connects these 21 old Spanish missions like a ladder from the coast over mountains to the valleys, back over the mountain to the coast, all the way up north, 800 miles north of San Francisco. And I did this. I started walking less than six months after Stanford removed my right lung. Mm -hmm. And I walked every day. For 55 days, I walked, and I averaged 15 miles a day. And at the end of 55 days, I had walked 800 miles, one day, one step at a time. Now, uh, okay, now this is where I have to ask. So was your husband with you? You know, if this was two months, 55 days. So during that time, I sometimes I walked with friends. Sometimes I walked with people would hear about the walk and they would want to come and walk with me for an hour or two. Mm-hmm. I had a Facebook page. Uh, so people would connect with me that way. Uh, my husband was part of it. But again, in two months, you know, he, we had mortgaged our house. We had a new business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> had to, he had to make He had to earn a living. At that point, was the business uh, at five years, five, six years, was it maturing and was it successful? for you too so that well, you don't have that worry or no 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 what actually happened in 2007 the business we had started in 2007 mm-hmm. we actually we actually were not able to to uh, it was just too, too much. To work, yeah. we did not he, no my, it was too intense and we we lost that business mm-hmm. 
and and went through quite a few traumas. We I went through a personal bankruptcy, mm. uh, although I had excellent health insurance. It's so so difficult, so difficult uh, to maintain uh, your financial well-being, if you will, when you're hit with catastrophic disease. Yeah. And 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 I was very lucky because I I did have good health insurance. Mm. I I I I'm one of these people. I would never ever ever not have medical insurance. I would always have medical insurance, even if I, uh, you know, had to had to save other places. I would I would always have medical insurance because yeah. things happen. On a side note, uh, uh, what if you had had something like, um, and we we may not even include this in the interview, but I'm just I'm just curious yeah. if you get something like catastrophic disease, and let's say you have not real insurance, but you are with like a. Uh, what is it? There's there's several things like MediShare or things oh, like that. Exactly, exactly. Or you're or you're tied into a a, a, a HMO. Yeah. We only have like a, a a few doctors you can see or a hospital or two you can see. Yeah. You're you're in trouble, Eric. I'll be honest with you. You're in trouble. Mm-hmm. You have to have freedom mm-hmm. when you have a catastrophic disease. You have to, especially one like gallbladder cancer that's stage four that's in seven or eight organs, yeah. you have to be able to have uh, just the leading edge. And it's, a university research hospital is where most of the leading edge research is going on for these later stage cancers. Sure, sure. Wow. But make an interesting point, Eric. I had two things going for me. Number one, I had a, a, a PPO medical insurance health insurance policy that allowed me to go anywhere, actually anywhere in the country. Wow. I'd had the policy. Our family had had that for, you know, half a dozen years mm-hmm. and it had been paying our premiums on time. And so, yeah, we, yeah, we'd never used it before. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it was expensive, but boy, was it ever worth it. Yeah. This, the second thing that, that had happened is I'd taken out a life insurance policy about five or six years earlier in a, because we're, we're small business people and, you know, life insurance policies are important for key, uh, key, uh, for people on their own businesses. And so there was a, a writer on that life insurance policy called an accelerated death benefit, mm. accelerated death benefit writer. And, um, what that said is that if you're, if you're hit with a catastrophic disease, the insurance will pay your life insurance will pay you 50% of the face value of your policy. Wow. Within three weeks, Eric, of my diagnosis, my diagnosis was that serious. Mm-hmm. Within three weeks, I had a check from my life insurance company mm-hmm. for 50% of my life insurance policy. Wow. That's and that, that gave me, Eric, was the freedom mm-hmm. to travel, mm-hmm. the freedom to, to, to seek out at, uh, great medical, uh, medical help as well. So you didn't just stay in San Diego. It was... Uh, I, places, yeah. I couldn't stay in San Diego. San Diego gave me three months to live. Right, right, right. <laughs> and actually, they were already talking in palliative care. Right. And this is happening even more frequently today, I think, than even 10 years ago, yeah. is there is a movement underway uh, with a lot of, of medical establishments that for stage four cancers, they are encouraging palliative mm-hmm. care mm-hmm. at the very onset, mm-hmm. which, Eric, palliative care means keep, keep the patient comfortable, mm-hmm. keep the patient comfortable. No, do not treat the patient. Keep the patient. It's not comfortable. a fight. It's a, it's, 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 it's a, it's a give up. It's, it's a, it's, it's a total surrender. Yeah. It's a total surrender. Yeah. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. I, and let me tell you, those people 
who accept it and they, they, they just say, yes, I'm accepting this. I don't want any chemo. I don't want any treatment. I'm just going to go to bed and I'm with my Bible or I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I just, I just support them a thousand percent because there's no one way to walk an old mission trail, 1600 miles. There's no one way to fight cancer. There's no one way to live a life. Yeah. So, um, so you, you, um, I guess because you started walking and this, this just intrigued you so much. Uh, what, what was the reasoning? I'm trying to picture yes. what, what okay. why would Here, you want to do that? Yes. Well, it went back to when I was fighting for my life for these five and a half years, all this chemo. That's how I was able to process the chemo. That's how I was able to tolerate so much chemo. I'm convinced of it mm. is I kept moving. I kept walking. I'd go in for a chemo chemo treatment, an infusion of toxic, poisonous chemo. And the first 24, 48 hours after chemo, you've got some energy because they, they put in the chemo chemical, they put a dextrose, which is sugar, and they put saline, and they put other things in. They mix it. Mm. And so you have what's called a sugar high, a chemo high, for about 24 hours, 48 hours. Well, I made use of that. I drank enormous amounts of water. Mm-hmm. I would get out and I would walk as vigorously as I could. Even in canyons, I would walk, mm. sweat, because what I wanted, Eric, is I wanted that chemo. And, and, I, and my doctor was giving me the maximum amount of chemo. I wanted that chemo to come into my body. I wanted it to kill the cancer. And then I wanted to get rid of it, mm-hmm. flush it out of my body before it killed healthy stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the way I figured, what could I do to do that? Well, I could walk. I could vigorously walk, drink water, sweat it out. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Now, after a few days, that chemo high, you, 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 you can't even hardly get out of bed. Mm-hmm. There are always windows of opportunity, and you have to seize those windows of opportunity. Wow. So, so I had learned, by the way, when I'm out there walking, I'm out there listening to gospel music. I mean, I am stimulating not just my physical cells, but I'm stimulating my spiritual cells. Mm. <laughs> and, 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 and so that was the five and a half years. Well, again, that ended after I had two, two surgeries during that time, liver and abdominal survey, sur- surgery, very radical. And then they removed my, my right lung. And that's when five, six months after removal of my right lung, I started on that walk because I already knew the healing power of walking. Mm-hmm. It's physically healing, it's emotionally healing, and it's spiritually healing. Mm-hmm. Walking is, we're, we're designed, God made us to walk. He gave us two feet. Mm-hmm. And I might have been missing a lung, but I still had two feet. Yeah. Gosh, I can't even imagine uh, having a lung removed. I, I just would... That would be so difficult, and I, I'd imagine it, it really was, wasn't it, getting used to that? It's yeah. not any fun. And actually, even today, to get that lung out, they have to cut from your breastbone all the way around to the very center of your, your back pretty much, and they have to tear apart your ribs, yeah. uh, pull apart your ribs to get that lung out. And so they damage a lot of nerves. And so, like, I can't carry a backpack yeah. because those nerves, I'm still numb, and I still have some nerve uh, issues. Uh, even, you know, it's been five years since or four and a half years since that surgery. Yeah. And yeah, I still have issues, mm-hmm. but I'm alive and I, I don't even think of issues. Yeah. I don't think of small stuff anymore. I really don't. Okay. So you, you finish the 600, the 800 miles. What happens then? 
Because that's well, only what, half of the trail. Yes, indeed, Eric. <laughs> what happens is cancer came back. Oh, by the way, when I but, but when I got to Sonoma after 800 miles and 55 days of walking and averaging 15 miles a day, I got to Sonoma and I did not want to stop. Hmm. I did not want to stop walking. And when I stopped walking, my body, you know, like when you're on a, a ship for a while and sailors get off and they can't hardly walk because their, their body's still a rhythmic of waves and stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's how I was. When I wasn't walking, I was still walking. Mm. It was a primal rhythm, a, a cadence, if you will. And I didn't want to stop. Mm. And um, and so because by the time I got to Sonoma, I was healed mm. physically. My lung, uh, I had there, I had worked through lung the lung pain. There were days when I thought I was going to pass out. I just couldn't get enough lung air into my lungs. Mm-hmm. There were days I hurt so bad I didn't know if I could go on, but I just kept going on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what happened is the walking actually healed my lungs. And, and filled my lung capacity. Mm. Uh, and when, I did a lung test a few months after the walk, and they were shocked here in San Diego. My lung capacity with, with the one lung was like 80% of normal. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. You got a great <laughs> lung there. Exactly. Exactly. And also had great legs. You did. I bet you did. I bet they were very, very firm all the way. <laughs> And, and, but another thing is I had emptied out emotionally. Mm. The overpouring of, of emotion, it, the overflowing, it had been poured out. Mm. And when I poured out all of these emotions, the fear, the dread, the anxiety, the terror, anger, all these emotions. So while you're walking, these emotions uh, come up in you and oh, you process yeah. them. And, and the uh, mission trail is... The mission trail, it wasn't just any old trail. This was like a special yes, place. I'm arriving at mission churches. I'm lighting candles. The Franciscan missionaries are coming and, and in their traditional Franciscan way. They're giving me food. They're giving me, they're giving me shelter. I stayed at a lot of the missions. They're giving me water. Mm-hmm. They, they, they produce wine. They're giving me wine. <laughs> you know, these wonderful, wonderful people at these missions and along the way. I'm meeting people. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, it it was just, it was a spiritual. Let's talk about spiritual. We talked a little bit about emotional. Yeah. Yeah. I, with the outpouring of emotion, emptied me of emotion, which allowed me to feel with grace. Mm. That's why we pour out our overflowings. That's why Job told, that's why God told Job, pour out thy overflowing. Mm -hmm. We pour it out so that we can take grace in. So we can feel with spirit, mm. and, and and a physical and a spiritual transformation happened at about four hundred to five hundred miles, okay. and by six hundred miles of walking every day, I was so connected with God, I was transcendent. I was no longer walking on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I was walking in with God, and it was such a feeling of, of I was in heaven. And, and I would just uh, everything. I my everything was wonder. My eyes were filled with wonder. You know, wow! Mm-hmm. Everything was wonderful. Yeah. And uh, because because everything stopped hurting <laughs> after 
about five or 600 miles, everything stopped hurting. Mm-hmm. The toenails that were going to fall off had fallen off. The blisters <laughs> had blistered over my feet a couple of times and healed. And now my feet were rugged. My, my muscles and my legs were, 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 you know, were primal muscles again, walking muscles. Mm-hmm. And, and, my, and my lung capacity had, had miraculously been restored and healed itself from, from the traumatic surgery of lung, of lung surgery. Yeah. So you, 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 you finished the walk and you said the cancer came back. Exactly. Exactly. Like how soon after that? Like two years, two years, two years later. Two years later. Okay. When I got to Sonoma, I knew that the old mission trail did not start in San Diego where I had started. The old mission trail actually starts 800 miles south of the border in Mexico, Loreto, Mexico. That's where the California Mission Trail starts. The first ca- uh, capital of California was Loreto, Mexico. Really? I had no idea. Wow. Loreto, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And what happened there is is the, the missionaries, uh, along with General Portola, started out from Loreto, Mexico. And it, by the way, it took them two to three months to, to work their way up to the border and, and into Upper California. They didn't know what they were going to find uh, anywhere in Upper California. But that's that was the discovery, if you will. That was the uh, the the westernization of California really started at that mm-hmm. time. Okay. And I was following that old mission trail of the of the explorers and and of the of the Franciscan and the Jesuit missions mm-hmm. missionary. Yeah. So so what happened is it came back in my left lung, my remaining lung, and and I knew I was going to finish this walk, Eric. I knew I was obsessed by it. I was bewitched by it. I was. I was thrilled to think about getting back out on the mission trail mm-hmm. and, 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 but you know, life happens and you just kind of put things off. Even when you have stage four cancer, mm-hmm. you put things off. And, and, but when, when, when it came back in my remaining lung, that again was another wake up call. And, uh, we treated it. At, it was too deep in the, in the lung to, to, uh, to remove surgically. So Stanford had, uh, the new technology had been developed for high intensity, very precise radiation. So we were able to burn out the tumor mm. and, and it was, we hoped it was all gone. We didn't know. And I wasn't going to wait around to find out if it was all gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I get on a plane by myself and I fly down to Loreto, Mexico to finish my mission walk. <laughs> and I only had the promise of, of a Caro, which is a Mexican cowboy, uh, because that's the only way to find this old mission trail. It's underneath 200 250, 300 years of cactus. Okay, so this is this is interesting now because the the second it seems like the first 800, the U.S. portion of it is much easy is a little bit easier to walk. It's different. It's urban, which is very dangerous. Dangerous urban areas. I mean, I'm walking through the most drug infested area neighborhoods oh, really? of Los Angeles. Oh, okay. With- a gang graffiti, a gang graffiti that are actually under uh, under um, uh, 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 police surveillance for for uh, yes, okay. you know for for, for uh, gang activity. Okay. Uh, yes, and so and also uh, highways in, in uh, California highways, you know that are incredibly dangerous and bridges and 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 roads that don't have any shoulders and uh, yes and uh, yeah. So so it was urban. It was an urban jungle. Okay. <laughs> In California, mm-hmm. and, uh, but it wasn't all. I mean, there were mountains. I had to. I, I there were five different mountains in California that I had to cross over to the valley mm-hmm. to get to the mission on the other side, and then back to the coast. 
so it was 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 a, a just a wonderful crazy weird wild walk like mm-hmm. California is right yeah yeah definitely so and, and Mexico was nothing but wilderness uh-huh. total wilderness <laughs> there was nothing out there except cactus nothing uh-huh. <laughs> was the trail even clear you said it was hard to find it. It was not clear at all. I had old maps. It's, it's pretty much unmapped. But uh, uh, 200 years ago, uh, in 1969, California's bicentennial, California's 200th birthday, um, the San Diego newspaper, uh, the Copley family of the San Diego newspaper, uh, sent people down to Loretto, a group of explorers, and they said, try to find this old El Camino Real mission trail. Mm-hmm. They sent photographers and explorers. And uh, one of the men on that, Harry Crosby, still alive. He's 92 years old. And so I used his old hand-drawn maps Mm -hmm. that he had done back in 1967 and 1974. He went back in 1974. He, he too, was bewitched by this after doing it in 1967. Mm -hmm. So I had his old hand-drawn maps. But I had the Vaqueros. And the Vaqueros, I had 20 of them in in the 800 miles. Because they knew every inch of territory for 30 or 40 kilometers. Mm. They knew where the old El Camino Real Mission Trail was in their area. Because they were all descendants from these missionaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were the people. Their their descendants were the people who worked in the missions. The the blacksmiths, the muleteers, the cowherders, the weavers, the carpenters. These are the Vaqueros' ancestors. So these Vaqueros have lived there on the old mission trail for 300 years. Mm-hmm. And do, do, they, are, do they actually traverse it? No. In many, many places, they do not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they know where it is. Or they would look at Harry's maps, and, 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 they, would, and they would show me, they would show me um, where Harry went. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes Harry was wrong, and they would show me where Harry was wrong. Huh. Uh, and so basically, I had a emerge. I had an Iridium satellite phone, so I could GPS this entire old unmapped mission trail, oh. uh, like Indiana Jones out there, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my Iridium emergency satellite phone, the Iridium satellite system, is what the U.S. military uses, yeah. and it's also what explorers around the world use. Mm-hmm. And twice a day, I would do a GPS ping. Well, my husband, my my. My husband is here in San Diego, and he has a Iridium satellite map on his computer, and he's he knows exactly where I am mm-hmm. because he can see my pings. Yeah. Now I don't know where I am, but he knows where I am. And I also had taken out evacuation insurance, so if I had a medical emergency, and it, it, and it was I was very lucky that I didn't. But had I had a, a, a medical evac, my insurance would have paid for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was also a key part of, of making this decision to go down there and do this. Okay. This is, this is absolutely crazy. I, I, if you don't mind, how old were you at this point? When I went down to Mexico? Yeah. Well, that was just, that wasn't even two years ago. Right. That was, uh, I went down October of 2015. Okay. Uh, so I was at that time, and I, I forget about how old I am. I have to do the math. <laughs> I, at that time, I was uh, 64 years old. Great. I love it. This is so amazing. So you did this in 2015. And you, now my understanding is from what I'm reading, I haven't read the book yet, uh, but I have some information here, is that you still have a, have you finished it? Eric, I have. You finished it. <laughs> What happened is that I did it last weekend. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yes, my husband and I, 
we, um, you know, I, if you, when you read the book, you'll understand, yeah. you'll understand there was, there was a, there were a few miles to go. Mm-hmm. And I, I really made the decision. I wanted to save that for my husband, mm-hmm. my husband, 42 years, he's walked with me through the, through the wilderness of life. Mm-hmm. He's always been by my side and has just been an enormous, enormous spiritual partner and, and, uh, soulmate. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, and it, and also the Vicaro <clears throat> refused to take me any further because it was a day before Christmas uh. and he was uh, worried about the traffic and he was worried about the mules and the horse, the mule that we had, he yes. was worried, uh, you know, about traffic, uh-huh. uh, because it's very, very dangerous out there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, as we, especially as we got close to the border, uh, we, we got close to highways, uh, the, uh Mexican highways are insane. Yeah. They, they, they are like two lanes. And with no shoulders, and we were out there with mules, hmm. and uh, yeah. So, um, and so he refused to go any further. I could have continued, and we were about thirty miles south of the border. I could have continued on my own because, I mean, I walk hundreds, thousands of miles on my own, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but I just stopped, and I knew I knew God was whispering to me that, hey, save it, mm. save it, mm. savor it, and savor it. And, 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 and so, yes, yes. Was it, um, how was it different? Uh, I know physically it was different in terms of the terrain and how you were able to do it. And you had these vaqueros who were incredibly valuable in getting you through, uh, the terrain and, and finding the trail and, and all of that. But how was it different spiritually? You mentioned what a big difference it was for you spiritually and emotionally. What was it like this, this, for this 800? What it was, it was empowering. Mm. It was because it was so brutal. Mm. What was happening to me physically with the thorns and the cactus and the no water? I mean, we were in the Sonoran Desert, and we were in mountains and so high and so steep and so precipitous that not even the mules, sometimes mules would, we had to blindfold on the mules at one point mm. to get the mules up, up up one of these roads. Now, the vaqueros are used to this. People think, oh, that's insane. This lady is endangering herself and these animals. And No, this is the terrain that they live in. Mm. They are in these mountains every single day. They just, they're, they're like bred in the Sierras. They're men of the Sierras, the mules of the Sierras. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. So how did you find them? How did how you did find I- these vaqueros? They found me. They did? They heard about your walk, or absolutely, they they communicate on via shortwave shortwave radios. Oh, okay, and of course they have to be at the top of the Sierra, mm-hmm. uh, the top of the mountains to communicate. So communication can be difficult and not frequent, but uh, but they found out what I was doing. There was this crazy American woman, gringo, <laughs> who didn't speak much Spanish, who uh, had cancer, who was out there on the El Camino Real Mission Trail, and by the way. They love their culture. They love their heritage. They love their old missions. Yeah. They love their mission trail. Mm-hmm. Now, now their missions have not had the same loving care or money that our missions have in California. So some of them are rubble. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I found beauty and I found grace and I found spirit even in the ruins mm-hmm. of these old missions. And so do these the people of the Sierras of Mexico. They they yes, it's so, so these these vaqueros were. They were excited to do this. It was an adventure for them too. Yeah. 
they shared this with me. They don't talk anyway, so it, they didn't care. That they, actually, it was a bonus that I didn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they could just be at peace and be at quiet and enjoy it. And I as, could, too. Mm-hmm. I could, too. Uh, because, by the way, we were too busy to talk. Mm. I mean, every day, it, it, every day was survival uh, when you're out there. There's no water. Like I said, it's very brutal. And, um, and you have to be very cautious. Anytime you're walking. Uh, you're, it's not, you're not strolling. You have to be very, very aware of your surroundings. It's so it becomes very mindful. You don't even have to will the mindfulness. The mindful just happens. happens. Rattlesnakes and scorpions Uh, and all kinds of giant centipedes. Mm. Yes. And And mules and wild burrows that come and (laughs) bite your mules in the butt. You know, it's like, I'm serious. (laughs) Well, how did you get water? How did water get supplied to you? Was this a, was there a team around you that helped with all of this? I mean, I'm... one thing there were mountain lions. Mountain lions were oh. a huge issue down there, and, oh my and gosh. We didn't have any? We didn't have any um, uh, any encounters with the mountain lions, but but the vaqueros always uh, kept the mules within a few feet of our tents. Uh, they slept outside in the open air, mm-hmm. and I had a little tent. Sometimes I was out in the open air. But most of the time, I had this little REI tent that I'd set up. Huh. Um, and, yeah, and so, but we kept the meals very close to us, and, and we could tell at night if there was a mountain lion in the presence in the vicinity, mm-hmm. uh, uh, because you know you have to be real careful. You don't want to lose a mule when you're out in the middle of the wilderness. Right. Uh, but yeah, so the, we had a, a the, and, and and when we'd come to water, we were always very cautious because we always saw mountain lion tracks, mm-hmm. and these are huge uh, Sierra mountain lions. You know, mm-hmm. they're, and so yeah, so we had to take precaution. Yeah. So you ask about the uh, water in the desert. Yeah. You ask about water. Um, well, you, again, these are men of the Sierras, the Vaqueros, mm-hmm. and um, and and I had taken, I had some uh, dromedary bags uh, that ten liter that would take ten liters of water. I had four of those with me that I got at REI before I went down, mm-hmm. uh, and so and they love my bags. By the way, they love my water bags. Oh, I bet. <laughs> and, and and occasionally in the what you find in the uh, in the arroyos in the desert is you'll find it's it's like a natural cistern. It's like a, a, a rock area where, where water has collected because it, water can collect. You know, say you have water every four or five years, water will still collect in stone. Um, and after a while, it will evaporate and dry up. But, but you do have some of those areas where and – and the, they would know where they were. But there were hundreds of miles at times that we had no water at all. Mm-hmm. And you, what you can do with one cup of water was always amazing to me. Uh, you, of course, you don't wash anything. Uh, and, 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 um, you, you, the one luxury you have and the Vakira will have, the Vakira will have his coffee, his coffee every single day. (laughs) If it's the last cup of water, he will have his cup of coffee (laughs) in the morning or afternoon or when is, when was his time for coffee? He prefers to have coffee first thing in the morning Mm -hmm. and he prefers to have it again at one o'clock. Okay. Uh, But in the extreme desert, uh, we would forego the afternoon, Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, always <laughs> in the morning. In fact, when I woke up and would get up at sunrise, we'd go to bed at sunrise. There were sunset. There were many times when I was in my tent at five thirty at night, and it was dark, really? and I would sleep by six o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And and th- because you get into a rhythm, a natural rhythm out there, and they're in a natural rhythm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when the sun comes up and it's freezing in the desert at night, it is so cold. It's malicious. It's vicious. Yeah. Uh, and so, and then it's hot. It'll, it'll be a hundred degrees, 105 degrees during the day, and then it'll freeze at night. So your body is just always bombarded by all of these extremes. Mm. Well, 
So, but, but when I'd get up in the morning, always the, the Carol, again, he's sleeping outside, right? They don't, I mean, these are, these are real cowboys. These are a real thing. Yeah. You know, he has a saddle for his pillow and he has a mule blanket for his, uh, his ground cover and, and, uh, you know, he's a tarp or something and yeah. And, and, a, and, and a deerskin, uh, um, uh, blanket and he's set, mm. he's more cozy and comfortable than I am. Yeah. Yeah. But so he's up making coffee and putting a big fire with dead cactus um, at, at, at sunrise, before sunrise, actually. You're up in the dark before sunrise. Wow. You are one tough woman. I, I just, I'm, I'm blown away by uh, what this adventure that you took. Obviously, you must have taken a long time to plan it. It took you two years to, to get back out there with the lung, the second bout of, with lung cancer or the cancer that was in your lung. Um, so well, keep in mind, Eric, that I was raised on a cotton farm. Yeah. Next youngest of 12 children. Okay. And I was, grew up in the fifties and the sixties and, uh, electric, electricity did not come to many places in rural America till the mid fifties and the late 1950s yeah. and even the early 1960s. And so I grew up without electricity. I grew up without running water. We had a cistern, but I grew up, uh, in a, in a country environment where that, uh, where we we had to make do with what we had, yeah. and my my folks were very strong Christian, very beautiful beautiful people, and um and and so and 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 I grew up wild on the farm, mm. and 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 I loved that. I mm. loved being a kid. You know, with, I mean, there was no no one ever said no. <laughs> you know, my mother was too busy working, and you know she's too tired of raising kids. You know, yeah. you know, she, you know they believed that you know they would teach us how to do right and expected us to do right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and we didn't have very much money, and we didn't need money. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we had garden, we had our cows and our milk and eggs, and my mother sold milk and eggs in town and stuff, and we raised cotton, and all of those kids were out there picking cotton. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so but I grew up like that, and I grew up dreaming of being a cowboy, <laughs> and so when something happens to you in life, you especially your later years, you, you want to go back and recapture that excitement of being a child. That's why men love their sports. Yeah. It connects them with that joy of, of being a kid again. Yeah. And for, for, for women, you know, the, the joy of being a kid again, for me, it was, it was, you know, I wanted to be a cowboy. Yeah. I read every Zane Gray, every Louis Lamar, you know, and, and, and the real thing, these are the real things in Mexico. These are the real cowboys. Yeah. And so I got to be a real cowboy for two months. Um, <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was so exciting. And it, it was brutal, brutal, mm. brutal. But it empowered me. It, it made me strong. It made me, I lost totally my fear of cancer. Mm. You know, now, am I going to be afraid when cancer comes back? Eric, I'm going to be terrified. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be terrified. But... But, you know, I'm going to be able, I'll be, I'll deal with it, you know, mm-hmm. and whatever that means, when, you know, we're all mortal, we're all going to die, mm-hmm. but let's live, let's live while we're alive. And that's what, that's where I'm kind of leading to here is, is that why you're telling your story? Is that what your, your ultimate mission, the, the book is called The Mission Walker, um, Obviously, we're talking here with Edie Littlefield Sunbee, and but it. I, I wanted to do. That's such a good question, Eric. I yeah. wanted to do several things. Number one, I want to be an ambassador of hope mm. for those who are struck with stage four cancer and told they ha- there's no chance they have a, a month or two or three months to live. Um, I want to 
I want them to know that there are people, outliers out there, and, and I give some practical advice in the book on, on things to do, how to cope, you know, how to, how to, um, and, and also, you know, just what is, what's going, what's going to happen to you. I, I, I kind of give all of that in the first part of the book, mm-hmm. but it's not a cancer narrative. It's not an illness narrative because you cannot, you have to live outside of the illness. So, mm-hmm. so most of the book is, is really, is really, um, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's about purpose. It's about meaning whatever happens to you in life, don't give up your sense of meaning, your sense of purpose. And for me, it was the adventure of walking the old El Camino Real Mission Trail. For me, it's the adventure of walking hundreds, thousands of miles. Hmm. It's amazing. And no one has done it before. No one has done that old mission trail in its entirety from Loretto, Mexico, up north of San Francisco, in over 200, 250 years. And a woman that was given three months to live did it. So what's your excuse, <laughs> right? What is, what is everyone else's excuse? And I, and I, 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 I want to honor people when I say that because you know what? Uh, we can, you felt all of those emotions, right? I'm sure you had to feel sorry for yourself. I'm sure you had to get some of this stuff out of you that you'd been uh- carrying, right? Over and over and over and over again. It's not just a one-time purging. It's an over and over again thing. But, you know, Eric, you said something up front. And, and I think there, some of your listeners will say, you know, yeah, I'm going to do that. I've got, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do, you know, they've got, they've got something in that they want to do and they're going to do it. And you said something up front. You said, you, we think we have all the time in the world. Mm-hmm. We don't. Mm-hmm. We don't. Eric, and that's one thing that stage four cancer or any catastrophic disease or any catastrophic life event um, hits home. Mm -hmm. You understand you don't have all the time in the world. That time is precious. It's a gift. It's God's gift. God has given us the gift of now, of this moment. Let's live it up. Let's live it to the fullest. Exactly. That is uh, how I started the very first episode of the Courage Cast. Said exactly that. You know, teach us to number our days because we don't have, really, in essence, we don't have that many days. And let's just live every day to the fullest as much as possible and not take it for granted. And you certainly uh, have lived that out and have taught me that today. Um, so I thank you, Edie, for for being on uh, the podcast and sharing your message with us. Um, how can people uh, join you now in the yes. journey and, or in, yeah, I guess now you just did it. You just finished the journey, but there's more to talk about and more. Uh, to there's journey always through. a journey, you yeah. know, the, the, the El Camino Real, the many branches of it actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'll, I'm going to be walking until God takes me. And I do pray that God takes me with my boots on out <laughs> on the old El Camino Real. But, but your listeners can find me. I have a wonderful website that my husband and I actually, my, my husband pretty much put it together. I wrote it and he, he did the programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's www.themissionwalker.com. Mm-hmm. And then there is the Facebook page, The Mission Walker. Mm-hmm. And of course, the book, and, and I do hope people find inspiration in the book, and I also hope they find some practical, some practical use of the book as well. Yeah. So who would the who would I'm assuming that people who are uh, needing inspiration, people maybe who are hit with some 
terrible news or going through a difficult time are going to find inspiration from your Facebook page, from your kind of your daily journal and your your uh, your website. Yeah, and and the book. yeah, but the, the, the book also is is also for people who just want to have fun. Yeah. Just have fun. You know, don't take life so seriously. I love take it. Take it seriously, but, you know, not. <laughs> Make it seriously fun. It, yes. 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 Seriously fun. Um, uh, so you said something in the beginning as well. You said arrogantly healthy. Yes. What does that mean to you, arrogantly healthy? Okay. I ate organic. I practiced yoga. I went to the gym. I lifted weights. I walked. I I, 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 I just did everything you're supposed to do. Mm. Uh, I, uh, have always, you know, my mother taught me that, uh, the body is the temple to the soul. Mm-hmm. And so to, 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 to treat our body like a temple, my, but my mother never took any medicine or anything. Uh, and she had all of these wonderful ways of, 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 of healing when she got sick. And, 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 and she taught us kids, you know, to, to, um, to take care of our body, but when, you know, and to, and how to, and how to, uh, overcome a lot of the common things associated with disease and life and everything. All of those things helped me greatly, uh, by the way. Mm. Um, but, but, but yes, um, so our even- body is so powerful. It's so powerful. Our spirits, our spirits are in control of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, but we have to. We have to uh, treasure our bodies and and respect that respect our bodies. Yeah, and yeah. our bodies will be there for us when we need them mm-hmm. because we will need our bodies. That's right. That's right. They <laughs> all work in tandem. They all work together. All of it: spirit, mind, yes. soul, body. Um, well, oh, gosh, I could just talk to you forever. You you are just such a joy, and I'm just um, I'm so happy for you. Congratulations on doing something that no one has done uh and you did it uh so i'm i'm excited i'm going to be digging into this book uh i just got it a week ago and uh and i'm i'm excited now to now that i've heard your story and i'm now leaving the flight we have just arrived at our destination and uh now i have a book with me and your story to take with me and and dive deeper into this um for hope because i like that you're an ambassador of hope so i'm going to carry this this little ambassador uh, with me. Thank you. Thank you, Edie, for being on the podcast, on the Courage Cast with me today. The pleasure has been all mine, Eric. Thank you so very much for having me. An amazing lady, Edie Sunby. I'm so grateful that I got to meet her and talk with her. We need Edie Sunbees in our lives, don't we? Here's uh, a few takeaways from this episode. Whatever happens in life, Don't give up on your sense of meaning and purpose. When we start to move, we're not as afraid. So as quick as possible, get to moving. And when you're handed a negative diagnosis, do your best to live outside of your illness. Live outside of your illness. What an amazing lady of courage and a great example of courage that she demonstrates for us to follow. Thank you, Edie Sunby. I can't wait to connect with you again. Well, that is the end of our episode. I want to thank you guys for being with me today. We have a very exciting guest next week, John Eldridge. Yes, you heard that right. John Eldridge, of course, the author of Wild at Heart, 
and so many other books, has a new book coming out that I can't wait to share with you. And I got to sit with him. So that's coming up next week. You don't want to miss John Eldridge next week on the Courage Cast. I want to invite you to become a patron of the Courage Cast at patreon.com slash couragecast. Get your free confidence PDF and video by visiting courageouscommunity.com. If you enjoy this podcast, take 30 seconds and give this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. I want to thank Matt Price at mattpriceonline.com for providing the great bumper music as always for this show. Well, that's it. I'm out of here. I'm going to go get some cough drops, some doTERRA cough drops. Take care of myself. I've been oiling up. Don't worry. I'm Eric Nordoff, and I'll be back again next week with John Eldridge on the next episode of Courage Cast. Oh.